Good afternoon. This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, this is Hooting Yard on the Air with me, Frank Key. You just heard, for some reason, instead of the music, you just heard something about augers, but never mind. Um, that was an error. We always have errors. So, Hooting Yard on the Air, as ever, half an hour of morally uplifting and instructive prose. This week, among other things, I'm going to tell you how to eat mashed potatoes next to a lighthouse. How to eat mashed potatoes next to a lighthouse. First, parboil your potatoes, then parboil them a second time, then mash them. Spoon your mash onto a preheated plate and cover thoroughly in tin foil. This will ensure your mashed potato stays piping hot while you're travelling to your nearest lighthouse. Before leaving the house, pop a fork and a napkin into your pocket. Catch a bus to the coast. There should be a rowing boat tied up to a painter on the shore. Carefully place the plate of mashed potato into the boat, then clamber in and row with all your might to that lighthouse over there. Tie up the boat to a post embedded in the rocks on which the lighthouse stands. Some of the rocks may be razor sharp, so be careful. Disembark from the rowing boat, not forgetting to carry your plate of mashed potatoes. Find a reasonably comfortable spot in which to crouch and remove the tin foil. Scrunch it up into a ball and put it in the same pocket from which you should now remove the fork and the napkin. Tack, tuck the napkin under your chin, making it secure so that it does not blow away in the howling gale. Using the fork, devour every last mouthful of your mashed potatoes. If the lighthouse keeper appears, share your food, for no lighthouse keeper likes to be deprived of mashed potatoes. You would, of course, know that if you had paid attention and learned your proverbs instead of being a feckless gutter snipe. Rinse your plate and fork in the broiling sea, then row back to the mainland, having given a hearty wave to the lighthouse keeper. Don't forget to tie the rowing boat to the painter where you found it. Place your soiled napkin and balled-up tin foil in the municipal waste bin at the bus depot. If you have missed the last bus, you will either have to walk home or spend a sleepless night cowering under threadbare blankets in a haunted manse riddled with poltergeists. You see, every week we manage to find the music eventually. This is called Tiny Enid Extinguishes a Volcano. One windy September morning, Tiny Enid read in her daily newspaper that a big volcano might be about to erupt. Volcanology was not her strong point, but some of the comments quoted in the story made her sit up with a start. 
A number of scientists from organisations with befuddling acronyms said things like, it looks like it will erupt soon, and we have recorded volcanic activity. Tiny Enid scoured the paper to see if there were any other signs or potents. So, potents? Portents. Tiny Enid scoured the paper to see if there were any other signs or portents, such as unusual locust swarm formations. But there were none. Yet. Her mind was made up. She packed a bag with pythons, hammers, extra socks and a flask of her secret elixir. She left instructions for the milk delivery person and the topiarist and called a taxi. The taxi took her from her house to the railway station where she boarded a train to the port from where a small boat rounded the coastline to that part of the land where there was an airfield. Tiny Enid had allowed her pilot's licence to expire so she paid a man with a decisive moustache and a flying cap to take the controls of the little two-seater Pangloss diesel plane and flew into the wild blue yonder with gritted teeth and blazing eyes. Tiny Enid never wore goggles when flying. She, th she thought them a sign of moral dereliction. Tiny Enid never let a day pass without reading a few pages of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Indeed, she kept a ragged copy of this devotional classic in her bag at all times. It is true that the Augustinian monk has nothing to say on the subject of flying goggles, given that he was writing in the 1420s, and it's hard for us to comprehend how Tiny Enid arrived at her interpretation. It is hard and also unwise, for no less than a dozen harmless souls have gone crackers trying to correlate the contents of Tiny Enid's brain. They languish now in places of shuddery languishment, although it is to Tiny Enid's credit that she pays for their keep, including porridge for breakfast and a nurse who mops their brows. Thomas Akempis suggests, chapter 50, that, quote, the desolate man should place himself in God's hands, unquote. And Tiny Enid agrees, but she has too a sense of her responsibility. Although these twelve men tried to make sense of her cerebral fumes and vapours uninvited, that does not stop her doing what she can for them. When the Pangloss landed at the foot of the volcano, Tiny Enid clambered out. She put on extra socks and ascended the volcano using her pythons and hammers. When she reached the summit, she found a pair of perilous vents in which molten magma was bubbling and boiling, ready to erupt, just like the scientists had said. She also saw a great deal of tephra in the form of rocks and cinders, ashes and dust, as if there had already been a mini-eruption. Pausing only to scan the sky for birds, Tiny Enid extinguished the volcano using a technique she had read about in the Reader's Digest. Then she started on the long journey home, whistling and only a little muddy.
long ago. Oh, how they clanged those gubernatorial bells. It is 80 years now since their peals sounded, but still I hear them in my head. They clanged ceaselessly, all day and all night, deafeningly loud for years on end. Cows stood dazed in the fields around the bell tower, many, many cows, too many cows to count, all dazed and stunned, and in those days no cowherds came to give them succour. In your tongue, gubernatorial refers to governorship, but in my land at that time, the gubernatorial bells were the ever-clanging bells of the ferocious tyrant known variously as the goob or goober or gubernat. Some said the gubernat was a fiend in human form, but none had ever seen it, so how could they be so sure, muttering darkly in the corner of the tavern, professing a knowledge they did not have, rewarded with a refilled tankard by some credulous foreign person on an ill-advised visit to our bell-blasted village. Dobson came here once. He crashed through the tavern doors, a clumsy adventurer, for he was young then, and jabbered at anyone who would listen that he wanted to go up the hill to the castle to meet the gubernat face to face. And what do you think you'll find, sneered an old frogman in the last stages of drunken despair. Within seconds, he keeled off his stool and lay insensible in the sawdust. Dobson answered him regardless. I know not what I shall find, old man, he announced. I know only that if those benighted bells are ever to stop clanging, the gubernat must be dragged from its perch in the castle atop the hill. Then you will know peace, as will the countless cows in your pretty fields who are now dazed and stunned. Our fields are indeed pretty, muttered someone lurking in the gloom, as is your speech, young Dobson. But the gubernat will never allow you into its presence. The last swashbuckling foreign person who came here on a mission such as yours ran away gibbering along Hollyhock Lane, they recovered his corpse from the duck pond a week later. When our necropod woman made her examination, do you know what she found? His brain had been sucked out into space. There is an art to saying, pshaw, with conviction. Later in life, as you know, Dobson was one of the great pshaws, but back then he was callow and shallow, and the pshaw he pshawed was a pitiful pip on his lips. In truth, he was unnerved by this news. He resolved to obtain a letter of introduction from the gubernat's solicitors, Buttercups and Todd, whose office he had passed on his way from the railway station. He pranced out of the tavern and retraced his steps. Neither Buttercups nor Todd was available, he learned, Cow business kept them fully occupied, for there were numberless cows and only the pair of them, the one greasy, the other mute. Dobson sat on a lump of stone in the market square, biting his fingernails and praying for the insane clanging of the gubernatorial bells to stop. That is how I found him so many years ago, on that gorgeous day when we first met, when still the cowherds stunned the cows, when the bells still clanged in that village far away, where I plied my trade as the necropod woman, fruitlessly searching for brains sucked into space, 
and for a pamphleteer whose pamphlets were not yet written, not yet read, and not yet out of print. Poem. That doesn't happen very often on this show, but sometimes it does. Well, it's a sort of poem. It might be a song, but I can't sing. It'd be good if I had a ukulele and I could sing along, but um, never mind. In loopy cops when I was young, all golden were the shrubs and trees. All golden I remember them, and bonkers Maisie from the farm. Maisie was unkempt and mad, just like her brother and her dad. Her sister left them long ago. She went to join a music hall. She made it as a chorus girl, and then she graced the silent screen. She looked like Edna Purviance and had a hat named after her. But bonkers Maisie never did, for she was always dressed in rags. The golden trees of loopy cops in those blue summers long ago. Oh, I remember them with woe as I sit here twirling my moustache. My woe is such that I may sob and mop my tears with my jacket cuff, but both my cuffs are smeared with grease. I dip them in the soup tureen. I don't know why, I don't know when, I don't know who knocks at my door. This bombed hotel has stale air. The other guests are rakes and fops. I'm sitting in my rocking chair, recalling the gold of loopy cops. Sag mir, wo die Blumen sind, which, um, as you probably know, means where have all the flowers gone? After breakfast, I did a quick set of Blotzman exercises, second handbook, and then I hoisted my rucksack onto my back and strode manfully off to the countryside to look at all the Blumen. The lake next to the decoy airfield was full of decoy ducks, for the first time, I noticed a shabby clapboard hut, which, according to a sign on its roof, was selling items of stationery at bargain prices. I strode manfully across the verdant meadows, stepping on innumerable bloomen as I went, and pushed my way into the tenebrous interior of the hut, wherein sat a crone sharpening a pencil. Hail, crone! I cried. Hail, wayfaring rucksack person, yelled the crone, deafeningly. I was disconcerted. From her withered old body, festooned in noisome rags, piped the voice of a youngster. 
I wondered with a start if my manful strides had led me inadvertently into the spooky land of Gar, reputed to be teeming with imps and sprites, spider gods and changelings, and with things that should not be. But I had faced peril before, and I had eaten a large breakfast. Quick thinking has always been my trademark, so I nipped out of the hut and uprooted a fistful of calla lilies to give to the crone. If she was a malevolent being from a parallel universe, the bloomin' would appease her, and if she was but a crone, there would be no harm done. Hail once more, crone, I declaimed, skipping into the hut. Here, have these calla lilies to brighten up your hovel. The crone accepted my gift graciously. As she reached creakily to take the bloomin', a slight disarrangement of her rags revealed the source of her arrestingly youthful voice. Wires trailed from her sleeve, and following their path across the floor, I saw that she was attached to a standard Kirpin voice box. Mischievously, I turned the dial to the US Vice President's setting, so when next the crone spoke, she would sound exactly like Spyro Agnew. I was about to ask the price of pencil sharpeners when a shell duck waddled into the hut. At least, I thought it was a shell duck. It may have been a teal. Its arrival sent the crone into a frenzy of terror. I had to turn down the volume on the voice box, so loudly did she scream. The teal, or shell duck, glared at her with uncanny purple eyes, and she carried on screaming. There was little I could do. My training never prepared me to deal with terrifying ducks. Not that I was scared of the teal or shell duck myself, you understand. I fear nothing anymore, not even those recurring nightmares I have about buttons, for I have been following Blotsman's second handbook for five years. That is why I am able to stride manfully about the countryside, trampling on bloomin without a care in the world. I picked up a pencil sharpener and placed a handful of coins in its place. The crone still screamed, the duck still stared. I left the hut and was blinded by the sun, bathing the fields in an unearthly light. As I approached gruesome ditch and my eyes adjusted, I saw that all the bloomin' had vanished without trace, and no birds did sing. I am not averse to pageantry, so when a parade came past my door last Friday, I went to my window to watch. Although the pane of glass in my window is bespurched by grease, I had a splendid view. I saw a yellow brougham, three green pantechnicons, a brown cabriolet, 
at least a dozen crimson charabanks, a pair of white phytons and a blue chariot, each with its flags and bunting and streamers and ribbons, some with hooters and klaxons making a terrible din. And they were followed by countless wagons and floats and cars, gigs, coaches, brakes, droshkies, jalopies and landows, jeeps, bogies and coupes, drays, palanquins and flivers, so many that before I knew it, hours had passed and it was dusk and there seemed to be no end to the parade. I was beginning to wonder how I would be able to cross the street. I wanted to go to the tobacconists to pick up a twist of nap and a plug of slot, but the succession of carriages, decorative snowploughs, unicycles and troikas showed no sign of abating. The crowd that had gathered to cheer and throw hats in the air and dance impromptu polkas was thicker than it had been all day. One mountebank had set up his stall close to my front gate and was attracting custom with whoops and whistles. I decided to risk crossing the road, thinking I could weave my way through the parade. I put on my hat and stepped out of the door and was at once caught up in a surging mob of revellers and borne aloft like some sort of mascot. They ignored my tremulous whimpers of protest but eventually dumped me on the curb about a mile down the road from my house and here the pageantry and crowds were, if anything, more boisterous, colourful and noisy than ever. What is all this in aid of? I shouted at a black-clad widow woman who was selling bundles of strange herbs from a barrow. She was reluctant to answer me until I had forked out a handful of cash for a sprig of irkbane. A potentate from a far distant land is visiting our town, she told me, and the council wanted to make him welcome. He is a terrible tyrant and he has been known to kill a horse just by uttering its name. His palace is bigger than the tallest mountain and is built from the bones of enemies he has slain in combat. But they say that in his bailiwick, sheep may safely graze. The widow woman continued to speak, but she was drowned out by a band of pipers on the back of a passing flatbed truck. I stuffed cotton wool into my ears. An urchin pressed a pennant into my hand, and I found myself waving it unthinkingly. Night had fallen now, but the town was bright with flares and gas and calcium nightlights. I stood at the roadside, hemmed in by carousing crowds, and watched the passing parade. Somewhere, bells were clanging. A mile away, in the dark, dark woods, owls swooped on field mice, badgers grubbed for worms, and insects glowed. A mile further on, the potentate's assassin tied a bandana around his head, lit a cigarillo, shouldered his rifle, and began his heavy, deliberate trudge across the marshes towards the town. Here's an excerpt from an adventure story. <coughs> Excuse me. Captain Baxter made one last desperate attempt to adjust the hooters, knobs and boosters on the console. For God's sake, man, the taxonomy of ducks, swans and geese is in a state of flux, he screamed. But it was too late. 
ten days earlier, it had all seemed so simple. Captain Baxter had been summoned to the Admiralty on a hot Tuesday morning. The place was swarming with admirals, but by asking a series of increasingly astute questions, he tracked down the admiral he had come to see. Righteous rank Admiral O'Houlihan was a forlorn and tawdry man, and Captain Baxter found him lurking in a corner of his office where light never penetrated. He hissed at the captain to join him there. I'm glad you could come, Baxter. For months now I've been getting intelligence reports about a certain matter that, I don't mind telling you, has frozen the blood in my veins. That is why I skulk in corners. He shuddered. I skulk, and as you can see, I shudder. You would too, Baxter, if you knew what I know about a certain matter. And know you shall soon enough. I'm sending you on a mission. Baxter's nose began to bleed, but he staunched it with a large rectangular pad of cotton wool. It's lucky for you that I'm not a vampire, said the admirable admiral mysteriously. His suit was cheap, his ears great prominent flaps the colour of death, his shoes had been gnawed at by weasels, and he lacked backbone. That was why he needed Baxter. Baxter's backbone was the talk of the admiralty, not just canteen gossip, but the subject of secret memoranda, bulging dossiers, and meetings attended by every single admirable admiral in the building all crammed into Admiral O'Houlihan's sunless refuge, jostling for space. Baxter knew nothing of this. He knew about a lot of he knew a lot about ships, rigging, cables, hawsers, decks both poop and orlop, dinghies, oars, the thews into which oars are slotted, and many other topics of maritime significance. His diet consisted chiefly of seaweed and ship's biscuits until today. Admiral O'Houlihan reached into the darkness which engulfed this corner of the room and Baxter heard cranking noises. Before you attend to a certain matter, Baxter, we must have lunch, he said, trying unsuccessfully to disguise his forlornness. His stick-thin arms set to work winching up a crate of food from a pantry far, far below. Baxter offered to help but the Admiral was a proud man in spite of his tawdriness. At long last, he was able to haul the crate into the room. We shall eat here in the shadows, he announced, and began unloading the food. The pair of them tucked into a feast of baps, buns, eggs, fat, jam, pie, beans, cake, chops, curd, flan, kale, pork, rice, rolls, rusks, sago, soup, suet, tarts, bacon, bread, broth, cloves, cream, dough, flour, fudge, gravy, gruel, honey, icing, jelly, liver, mince, prunes, pulses, salad, scones, syrup, toast, wafers, yeast, batter, bonbons, butter, cheese, comfits, eclairs, faggots, garlic, greens, junket, kidneys, Moose, noodles, nugget, oxtails, pastry, peppers, potatoes, ragu, raisins, simnel, sorbet, sponge, toffee, walnuts and peppermint, at the end of which Baxter was given full details of his mission. It would be no easy task, but he kissed the Admiral's forehead 
forehead as a sign that he accepted it. O'Houlihan wedged himself even further into the corner as Baxter took his leave, striding across the filthy office and placing his blood-soaked rectangular pad of cotton wool into a basket before closing the door gently behind him. Little did either of them know that in ten days' time the taxonomy of ducks, swans and geese would be in a state of flux and Baxter would face a peril greater than death itself. I seem to have a great deal of difficulty saying the word admiral in that piece. I kept saying admirable. I'm not sure why. Anyway, that was about Admiral O'Houlihan and Captain Baxter. Um, and that's the end of Hooting Yard on the Air for this week. I will be back next week with more stuff. Um, so have a nice week and I'll see you then. Bye-bye.